0: Welcome to IntrepidTimes.com. This is Nathan Thomas, very excited to be interviewing Glenn Kurtz, author of the book Three Minutes in Poland, Discovering a Lost World in a 1938 Family Film. We speak about Glenn's journey to identify the people in this fantastic historical footage his grandfather took on a tour of pre-war Poland, and about his own experience traveling the world and speaking to survivors. So I'll jump in, if I may, and One of the things that really kind of struck me as I was reading your book was the incredible amount of time and effort and energy that you put into really meticulously researching every detail, every face, every person. And I want to try and get a sense of what drove you to do this, what motivation you had.
1: Well, you know, when I first looked at this film, in my standing in my living room, and I saw all of these faces. And there's so many children um, in this film, and they're all excited to be on the camera. They're waving, and they're pointing and shouting, and you can see them kind of jumping up and down. They're so excited to see a movie camera. And, you know, there's nothing in the film that Pretends anything bad. There's no, you know, violence. Everybody's happy. Everyone's excited. But the moment I saw it, I knew what what was going to happen, um, and that you know, ninety eight percent of these people within a few years would be horribly murdered. And i I felt responsible. I felt like you know, just by chance, these people's faces had appeared in front of my grandfather's camera lens for just a second and and it could very well be the only kind of living record of them other than say you know an entry in a in a birth register or something like that and so i felt like i had inherited unexpectedly the responsibility for their memory and so i felt an enormous urge and a um you know, as sort of it was more than just a you know a sense of responsibility in the kind of dry sense. It was just this this kind of passionate feeling that that their memories depended on me. And what's more, the film itself is so beautiful. The parts of it are in color. The detail is just extraordinary. You see people's clothing and their gestures and their relations to other people on the street. It's just so lively. And yet, if you don't know, you know who they are, it's just this generic thing. Oh, people on the street, people in Poland before the war, Jews in Poland before the war. And I just thought, you know, these were individuals. And, and I wanted to know their names, their, their stories, as far as it was possible to learn it, with the same kind of detail that the film preserved. I wanted to do justice. To the precision of these images and the you know, yeah, the liveliness and the detail of these images. So that, that was really what motivated me.
0: I remember at one stage in the book, you described yourself as you're watching the film uh, with, I believe, one of the survivors as aching for familiar faces. So this is clear that this was a really powerful kind of emotional drive that you had to, to figure this out.
1: Well, I mean, it's one thing for me who, you know, was born many years after the war and who my grandfather, I never met my grandfather, and um—and he, he and his family came over in the 1890s to the United States. So, you know, the the life of this town is a something removed to me. I mean, it felt present, and certainly watching the film, it felt present. But it was completely different to sit with someone who grew up there and who knew the these people and who may even in the film be among those people and for the survivors who who lost not only you know for the most part all of their families all of their friends but the entire culture in which their childhood made sense to see this film to see this you know momentary glimpse back into that world before anything bad had happened the the desire to connect and to kind of place themselves or find themselves again in that context is so profound so yeah I, I, I felt that ache <laughs> for them and and coming from them to you know it, it's it's this momentary kind of imaginative imaginative possibility of being back there when, when things were still you know, normal.
0: And it's a, it's a huge thing to, be, to play a role in. And when you're sitting there with these survivors who were potentially looking at themselves or their siblings on that video and you, it was because of you that they had this film in front of them, I wonder how comfortable did you feel in that role?
1: You know, it was something that I I grew into. Honestly, I hadn't, you know, I thought when I found the film, wow, it would be amazing to be able to show this to someone who, you know, lived there or to a survivor or someone who recognized someone. But you can't really understand what the emotion of actually doing that is going to be until you do it. And to witness and be in the presence of, that someone experiences who is then suddenly in that position 70 years later who you know there's this desire of course to see your family and people who were violently torn away from you and then there's also this deep resistance to opening up that wound again and and the complexity of the emotion for them was something that I had nothing I had no way to anticipate and the complexity of the emotion that I felt of putting them in that position because of course I imagine the wonderful thing oh won't they be excited to, to see their family and I had no way really to grasp the, the terror that seeing a longed-for face suddenly might might produce in them so I had to learn how to be present with them during that experience. And it's, I have to say, one of the the most profound experiences I've ever had in my life.
0: There's a real significance to the timing of when you discovered this tape because these survivors who you were able to sit with were, I mean, many, some of them, obviously, by definition, survivors were, were still alive. But had you discovered the tape 10 or 20 years later, there would have been far fewer people to talk with. And it was very much the case of sort of elderly people recalling their childhoods across this great chasm of memory. And often they hadn't really thought about or they hadn't forced themselves to remember before you spoke with them. It was kind of the first time that they'd connected in a safe context with this.
1: Yeah, and of course different people have different relationships to these traumatic memories, and some people force them, you know, down and suppress them and say, you know, that was before, everything that happens after is new and I'm going to live only in the life afterwards. And there was one woman whom I met who had for whom that was sort of the her disposition. And and yet now in her late seventies. 70- she was suddenly beginning to think well you know if i don't remember no one will remember and to to hear her really struggle not only with just that long distance of you know trying to remember over this terrible chasm but also of kind of trying to overcome her own training in not remembering um it was extremely poignant Uh, Because she wanted to remember and she didn't want to remember, kind of in equal measures. And then there were other survivors who, you know, they had kind of packaged the stories for their families into a number of anecdotes, which they would repeat and which they were comfortable um, expressing. And and this had the effect of allowing them to share their experiences on some level, but also of protecting themselves from kind of un, unwanted memories. They could control the story in that way. And then there were there were other survivors who who throughout their lives had kind of probed these memories. Of course, they were the most painful experiences of their lives and and at different moments in their lives in different contexts they had tried to yeah to open themselves up to what these memories had done to them and and what these experiences had done to them and sitting with them also now in their 80s or 90s remembering what what they had done and how they had behaved at age 14 or 15 in these most horrible circumstances, again, they, they look back almost as if with wonder, like I, to say, you know, I, I would never do that now. I don't even know how I could have done it then. It, 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 it comes to them almost as something foreign, almost because they've spent so much time um, over the course of their lives trying to make sense of those experiences. So, yeah, you know, people deal with their memories in very, very different ways. And the, and the nature of the memories and the nature of the responses to the film differed uh, as a result of these, these different kinds of relationships, really, that they have with themselves.
0: It's fascinating to think that it's, it is the child's perspective. We, we remember uh, Michelles from the perspective of a child who grew up there uh, in the late 30s. A lot of the stories focused on the sweet shop or you know, creating a cart for the horse or sneaking off to eat, take a bite of ham uh, naughtily. And it's such <laughs> uh, innocence contrasted with just the incredible horror of the things that came immediately afterwards.
1: Yeah, well, M- 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 Mori Chandler, who was, the, was born Moshek Tuch Handler, Uh, in 1924 and, and he is kind of the centerpiece of of this story um he appears in the film and as a 13 year old boy and he had the most precise memory he remembered names and dates and places and and he was really the the person who became my guide, who opened up this story for me um, and allowed so many of the extraordinary things to happen. I mean, he had a was a very rambunctious child um, and had these extremely vivid memories of, um, you know, misbehaving, in, as you say, in this kind of innocent, small-town way. But one of the things that he said to me when when we first started talking was, and he looks at himself at this this child of 13 before anything, you know, the worst thing that had ever happened to him is that he, you know, gotten yelled at by his rather strict grandfather. And he looked at this kid and he said, you know, I can't, I can't believe that I was ever really a child because a year later, he said, I became an old man, an old man at 16. Um, And, and that, you know, to, to, to try for him to bridge that gap between just those couple of years from really, as you say, being an innocent kid, being a kid, and then being someone who had the ultimate responsibility, not only for his own life, but for the lives of his families. Um, yeah, I, it was for him a an almost impossible thing. And I think it came as a huge surprise to him. He, he It's as if he couldn't even remember that he'd been a child.
0: It's such an incredible uh, gift that you were able to bring to these people and the story that you created from it. Um, at what stage in your research did the idea for this book kind of crystallize in your mind? I know originally you were researching another book, also with the context of old films set in Vienna you put that aside and took up this one.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, there's so many uncanny things that happened in the course of this story, but one of them was that, uh, I has, I was actually writing a novel. I had heard someone speak, Um, a curator at the uh, Film Archive in Vienna, and he spoke about a film that had been discovered really by chance in the flea market there, that turned out to have this historically enormously valuable footage. And I thought this was such an interesting story, and I was actually writing a novel with that That as the plot. Somebody discovers an old home movie and becomes kind of obsessed with the people, the unknown people in these images and tries to uh, go back and and reconstruct who these people are and what their what their story was so that was the novel that i was writing and it was only in the course of working on that that i remembered you know my family had some old home movies I, i wonder whatever happened to them and that was when i discovered this movie and so then the plot of that novel actually happened to me and i discovered an old home movie and became obsessed with identifying the people in those in those old images um so, I, I, had a, I had gone through that experience in some sense imaginatively before I went through it for real emotionally, um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was a tremendously unexpected development.
0: I mean, there are so many of such, like, fortuitous coincidences and unexpected developments, like Originally, we'd thought that the town in the video was Berezna on the Ukrainian border. It turned out to be in the Shalsk, but then you found when you were in Israel, people who were from Berezna and could uh, help you out with that little bit of information. The pieces all sort of kind of fell together.
1: Yeah, I mean, they did. That's the extraordinary thing. I mean, think about it. If you have a photograph and you don't know who's in the photograph, how do you figure out who they are? Um, That's the crazy thing about, about a picture, is that it's so detailed, but unless you know what you're looking at, you have no idea what you're looking at. And that was the case for me. The family story that I was told when I first found the film was that it documented my grandmother's hometown. And, you know, I had no reason to disbelieve that. That town also suffered horrific violence, as every Jewish town in Europe did during the war. And also of about 3,500 people, only 150 people of that town survived. So finding a survivor from that town, a living survivor, was something extraordinary in the first place. And then I was very excited. I told this man, well, you know I have this film of your hometown. Maybe you'll see someone you know. Because I was... (laughs) You know it was the very first instance of it and i hadn't really understood what the emotions of it were and i showed it to him and within a second he said yeah I've never seen this place before in my life and and i was well i had a number of, ex- of emotions at that moment the first was i felt horrible that i had led this man on and, and raised the hope that he might see someone or even himself and then disappointed him. Um, which was a, I I felt horribly guilty. And I learned to be much more circumspect when I approached people after that. But then the question was, well, if it's not that town, what town is it? Um, And my only other possibility was, well, maybe it's my grandfather's hometown. Um, And I was unable to find a survivor from that. So I went to archives and, you know, just started digging. And I ended up coming up with like the Business directory to this town and correspondence with um, various aid organizations, American aid organizations that would help transfer money from uh, emigrants who were now living in the U.S. back to their relatives who had remained in Poland. And I came up with, you know, hundreds of names of people who were living in this town. And I had hundreds of faces of people who were living in this town. But to put those two separate, um, resources of information together was absolutely impossible and i worked as hard as i possibly could to bridge that gap and yet in the end what allowed me to do it was complete chance i had donated the original film to the united states holocaust memorial museum and it's actually you can see it on the website and two and a half years after i started searching and had been going to archives and libraries and you know trying desperately to find people i got this email out of the blue from a young woman in detroit who happened to have seen the film online and in one of those scenes where the camera pans across this you know group of sort of laughing and pointing children she recognized her grandfather as a 13 year old boy and and he's still alive, that's that's Mr. Chandler, uh, he'll be 93 in, in November. And, and it was through that extraordinary chance, if I hadn't learned that the town was my grandfather's hometown, when this young woman searched for her grandfather, her grandfather's hometown, she wouldn't have seen this film. It would have been listed differently. So that had to happen at the right moment so that when in that one moment that she searched for it, this film happened to come up. And then, you know, postage stamp size on her web browser, she had to be able to pick out this face, which is on screen for just a second, a split second. It's an extraordinary thing that she was able to recognize her grandfather as a boy, 72 years younger than she'd ever seen him before, because he has very, very few pictures left from that time. And, And she recognized him. And he's still alive. And he has an extraordinary memory. And he was willing to talk to me. And, yeah, from those chance occurrences, um, it became possible to reach out and back into the research that I had done and begin to make connections. And as I say, those connections, so many of them were just fortuitous. When I started going back to this town, Nachelsk, uh just north of Warsaw, I came into contact with the man who was the director of the high school at the time, he was a prof- uh, historian by profession. And he was extremely helpful to me. And we were talking and he started telling me about his family genealogy. And Mr. Chandler, when I had spoken with him, he had said, well, when you go back to that town, try and look for the, you know, the descendants of this friend of his grandfather's guy named Tomaszinski. And so I asked this history teacher, well, do you know the name Tomaszinski? And he looks at me. Yeah, well, that was his wife's family. His wife's maiden name was Tomaszczynski. And so they were connected, these families. Um, and, I mean, that was just the beginning of truly dozens of quite uncanny circumstances where connections that I had no reason to to believe could be made were suddenly and really fortuitously made.
0: Yeah. So your trip to uh, London, then Warsaw and the Schausk, and then on to... Tel Aviv. It, it occupies a reasonably small part of the book. I mean, most of it is about the stories of the survivors and the, and the research and, and connections which took you to them. But it's, it's a very powerful part, particularly your time uh, with uh, the history teacher who you just mentioned, and trying to find the cemetery of your ancestors in the which had been converted uh, during the war into into an airfield. The
1: cemetery itself was desecrated almost immediately uh, so this town is just outside of warsaw and there's a strategic rail junction outside of town so you know the, the german army invaded poland on september 1st 1939 and by september 4th this town was in german hands um extraordinarily quickly and almost immediately they desecrated the sites of you know jewish worship the same and also the cemetery. And in the following spring, in the spring of 1940, um, the Luftwaffe started building an airfield uh, maybe about eight kilometers outside of town. And um, they took the headstones from this cemetery and used them as bedding underneath one of the runways. Um, So the cemetery itself was completely destroyed. And in the post-war period, there were no more Jews left in the town and the local people didn't really know what to do with this piece of, of formerly sacred ground. So they planted trees there. So the cemetery, yeah, there's, there's nothing there now. But the airfield is still there, overgrown. And so in this strange way, those headstones are preserved um, underneath this layer of concrete which is now overgrown with weeds in the same way that the the plot of the cemetery is in this weird way preserved by this forest that's now grown up um, after it. The traveling that I did, you know, was entirely in the service of finding, uh, of finding people or finding traces that, that this community had left and, um, you know, I was in London to speak with a survivor. Um, I went back to Poland to visit this town and to see what, what remnants, if any, were left. And then, of course, I went to, to Israel to, to see in, in the archives and also uh, among the community um, of survivors there whether I could find, yeah, memories or artifacts or photographs or letters or anything that that might help make this town feel, feel present again. And I had to learn that traces exist in all sorts of unexpected ways. So it's possible, for example, that a cemetery can be preserved as a forest or that uh, headstones can be preserved underneath a layer of overgrown concrete. Um, what constitutes preservation is very... Yeah, it's uh, it's something that requires a lot of kind of creative thinking and creative experiencing. You don't expect, I mean, you, you of course want to meet someone who will tell you what <laughs> what happened and what it was like. But, but sometimes you have to be open to finding traces of absence. So when you walk around the town square in Nyshalsk, which was predominantly Jewish in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, now, of course, there, you know, there hasn't been a Jewish presence in the town since 1939. So There's nothing there that reminds you in any direct way that, that this was once a Jewish community, until you look in the door frames of the, of the houses on the Market Square, and there you can see painted over these kind of divots, these little gouges in the wood where a Jewish family would have put a mezuzah, um, which is this ritual object with a small text in it that um, you traditionally put at the entrance to your home to, to indicate that it's a that it's a Jewish home. And these would have been pried off uh, after the homes were taken over first by the Germans and then by, by, by the local Polish people. Um, but you can find this trace of the Jewish presence by the absence of that object, which leaves a small mark in the wooden door frame.
0: It's, it's really incredible to, to read your experiences there and to hear you talk about it. And I, I did you know, a drastically a smaller version of this some years ago when I visited Lublin, uh, which is a city that's mentioned once or twice in your book uh, in eastern Poland where uh, my uh, Jewish ancestor had come from. And, and as you say, it's the, you take whatever scraps you can you can get uh, when you're in it and your mind and the stories that you hear uh, populate the rest. And by preservation uh, through the stories that you've heard and the book you've created and the film of your grandfathers that you've found that you've uh, kind of put out into the world that it now I believe plays at the Auschwitz Memorial and has seen uh, you know, by millions of people, uh, at least a million every year. So this is something that's really been positive contribution because of the, the work you've done for this book.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I, every, practically every day I have a moment when I just think, how incredible. You know, my grandfather came as a small child to the United States, he was American, grew up American, he, became successful enough to undertake some traveling in the 1930s and at age 50 went back to this town where he was born. And he probably spent, you know, a couple hours there, maybe most of a, of a day, and took this film, which is three minutes long. And that's where I get the title of the book, Three Minutes in Poland. And from those three minutes, it's like an entire community that was wiped out has a presence now and that film which was just a tourist souvenir my grandfather was fooling around he wasn't a professional photographer or a cameraman and he you know wasn't uh, even a serious amateur cameraman he just had a camera and he took some pictures with it and yet those pictures now as you say are part of the museum in the jewish pavilion at the auschwitz Memorial at the, at the on the site of the death camp, and and those images play in as part of that commemoration. And it's just absolutely incredible to me that you know this so this so slight thing should come to have such extraordinary meaning and to play such a an important role in the memory of. What was otherwise, you know, a, an obscure, ordinary little town um, that suffered just as you know, thousands of other little towns throughout Poland and Eastern Europe suffered. And yet because of this chance of this film, of those few minutes that my grandfather happened to take and the fact that the film just happened to survive 70 years sitting in the closet and that I happened to find it when I did, and that, you know, as you said, if I had found it a few years later, the chances of being able to speak with survivors and and to capture their memories and to sort of integrate the stories that they were able to recall with the other stories that other survivors had recalled, just the chance of it all is so, so remarkable to me. And and it, it just, it overwhelms me. And, you know, I spoke with Mr. Chandler just a few days ago, and every time we talk, we just laugh at how amazing it is that we're in contact and that, you know, he receives letters and calls and emails from people all around the world um, whose relatives uh, were from this town. And, and he's like, to them now, this elder statesman, almost like this oracle, oh, yeah, I remember your uncle. And, and he can tell a story from them, uh, for them, of people who, who died 70 years ago, and whom these people never met. it's just It's just incredible to me.
0: Wow, um, reading the book was an amazing experience for me, and talking to you about it has made it all the more uh, meaningful. Glenn, so thank you so much for taking the time uh, today uh, to do this interview.
1: My pleasure, and, and thank you for, for talking with me.